1 Corinthians chapter 7, and when you get there, if you would please stand, and we'll read God's word together. First Corinthians 7, starting in verse 25, the Apostle Paul says, Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned, and if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. Verse 32, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly toward his betrothed, if his passions are strong and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It is no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control— and has determined this in his heart, to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is, and I think that I too have the Spirit of God. And you can be seated. All right, well, we are, we're winding down uh, this section on sexual ethics in 1 Corinthians 6 and, and into chapter 7. Uh, we've, we've covered a lot of ground, actually. Uh, just as a reminder, we've, we've seen um, prostitution and how our bodies are holy. We are the temple of the Lord, and so we should not be joined together by anything unholy. We saw that in chapter 6. Uh, we saw that Uh, sexual intimacy within the marriage covenant is a very good thing. Uh, We've seen the Bible's view on those who are unmarried, those who are widows. We've seen the Bible's view on divorce and remarriage. We've seen just a bigger picture of when you're saved. Uh, You don't need to go out and do a whole bunch of radical things. Uh, For the most part, God wants you just to stay in the condition in which you were called. And now we get to this uh, section, which in verse 25, if you have ESV, says now concerning the betrothed. If you have other versions, if you have the NIV or the NAS or New King James, you have uh, the word virgins there. Um, and and I, won't, I won't spend a lot of time addressing this, but there's, there's some, some question about exactly what is Paul talking about there. Uh, the actual word that is used is parthenon, which means virgin. 
Um, but the idea is virgins with the intent to marry. Um, and we'll see some of that a little bit in here. Uh, but the, the ESV just, just kind of does a little bit of the, the interpretation for us by calling it betrothed. I happen to believe that he's talking about people who are betrothed here. He's talking about basically everybody else in the whole spectrum of marriage except those who maybe came to faith in Jesus Christ when they were betrothed or when they were, we would say, engaged. Um, and so that's what I think he's talking about now. So we see this in verse 25. He says, now concerning the betrothed, and again, if you have NIV or some other version, you probably have uh, now concerning the virgins. Uh, he says it again in verse 28. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman or a virgin marries, she has not sinned. We see that again in verse 34. The interests are divided and the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord. That's probably that verse right there is, is one of the big clues that, that he's talking about two separate groups here. Because he distinguishes the unmarried from the virgins, or the ESV would say, from the betrothed. He seems to have two categories in mind. Both are technically unmarried, but, but one is, is headed toward marriage. And then we see that again in, in verse 36, where it's actually, rather than talking about the woman, it seems like he's talking about the man who's in that betrothal situation as well. So all of that to say... Um, I believe this section is talking about those who are betrothed, those who are in that sort of engagement um, process. There seems to be a, a tension here that, that that betrothal issue would bring up, which is why he's addressing that. Now, I've talked a little bit about betrothal over the last few weeks as we've uh, dove into this passage a little bit. I wanted, to, I wanted to talk about it a little bit more since I think this is exactly what he's talking about. We can compare and contrast it a little bit with our engagement here. Um, here's, a, here's a definition of betrothal, and this is from the Dictionary of Bible Themes. It's a period of engagement preceding marriage. It's a binding contract between two families, and it's sealed by the exchange of gifts. Okay, so it's a period of engagement preceding marriage, before marriage. It's a binding contract established between two families, and it's sealed by the exchange of gifts. So that's, that's kind of what we're talking about here. Um, there are basically four parts to this. Um, number one, that there was no sexual union in the betrothal period. They were considered husband and wife, but there was no uh, sexual union at all. This is Mary and Joseph, right, before before Jesus was born, they were considered husband and wife, but there was no sexual union with them. The second part that is interesting in betrothal is that there was a balance between the parent's involvement and the child's desire. So the parents were very much involved, but there was also the child's desire. We see this in two places, actually, in Genesis. In Genesis 21, Ishmael wanted to be married. He said, go get me a wife. He's talking to his mom. Go get me a wife. And uh, most of you moms are like, uh, that's not my job, son. Uh, in the old covenant, it was. It was the job of the parents to go and negotiate this. Uh, we, see, we see in Genesis 27, interestingly, Esau went and he got married, but there was no parental involvement. And he brought shame and grief to his parents because he short-circuited that parental involvement. So there's parental involvement, but there's also 
the, the child's desire. The third aspect of betrothal was money. There was money involved. There were, there were two sides of it. So there was the bride price. You may have seen this a little bit in the, in the, in the Bible, the bride price. The bride price was the amount of money the husband or the husband's family paid to the wife's family to secure the wife. That's what it was. And, and this got really interesting sometimes. Do you remember what the bride price David paid for Saul's daughter was? It was a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. That was the bride price. Do you remember what David delivered? He delivered 200 foreskins of the Philistines to secure Saul's daughter Michael in marriage. That was the bride price. There's also, this is interesting, there's also another, uh, another situation in Genesis 34 where the sons of Hamor, I think is how you say his name, they wanted to marry the, the daughter's of um, Israel. You remember that? And they said, there is a bride price. The bride price is you have to be circumcised. And you remember what happened to the sons of Hamor after they got circumcised? They all got slaughtered. The sons of Israel came in and they, they absolutely slaughtered the sons of Hamor. So, so a bride price, it could be money. It could be a certain amount of sheep or goats or, or labor or that sort of thing. It could also be um, war favors, that sort of thing. So the, so the one side of, of the money is the bride price. It's the money that the groom's family or the groom paid to secure his wife. And then there was the dowry. The dowry. And the dowry was the bride's family who gave money to the bride on her wedding day or to the bride and groom. It was sort of the blessing as they began the family. And we see that with Jacob and Laban. Sort of as, as Laban, um, the, the bride price that, that Jacob paid was to, to work all those years for for, for the two daughters. And then the dowry that he got was a, a huge flock um, from his labor. So there's the bride price of the dowry. The other, the other aspect, the fourth aspect, so there's no sexual union, there's parental involvement, there's money. The fourth aspect is that they are legally recognized as binding in marriage. It's not fully consummated because there's no sexual union, but it is legally binding in marriage. If you remember Lot from the book of Genesis, he had sons-in-law, but they were not technically married to his daughters, but they were viewed as, as a technical union together. This is the betrothal period. It's stronger than our engagement period. Engagement here is just a promise that, that one day we'll get married. It's, it's really nothing more than that. In the Bible, whenever you see betrothal, it's much stronger than that. And I wanted to show you something uh, a little bit interesting, I think, related to the whole betrothal situation. And that's actually in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. So turn one book over to the right. So we know that marriage is a picture of Christ's love for the church, right? That's, that's what we depict when we, when we get married. And so we will often say that the church is the what of Christ. It's the bride of Christ. Well, it's interesting because actually we're not technically fully the bride yet. We are in a state of betrothal right now. We are in a technical betrothal state. You know what we're waiting for? We're waiting for our husband, Jesus, to come back. And that's why people talk about the return of Jesus as the consummation when we are fully and technically married. Paul actually teases this out just a little bit in 2 Corinthians 11, 
verses 1 and 2. He says, I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me, for I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. Isn't that interesting? We are the bride of Christ, but we're still the virgin bride of Christ, and we are waiting for Jesus to come back when the actual marriage begins, because we are waiting for the marriage supper of the Lamb, when the marriage happens, the reunion, when Christ comes back. And so this is, uh, this is just a beautiful picture, betrothal is, of actually the state that we live in right now in relation to Jesus. We are his bride in some sense, but we are his betrothed bride. We are waiting for one day for him to come back and the, the marriage to be consummated. I just think that's a pretty, pretty cool connection. So turn back with me to 1 Corinthians 7, and let's kind of unpack this a little bit. Again, I, I think what's going on here is that people have, they, they were in the betrothal period, and they came to faith in Jesus, and now the question is, well, what do we do? Remember, there was a lot of misinformation being spread in, in Corinth. There was, there was there were people spreading this idea that it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. And people were thinking, well, that means like ever, not even within marriage. And so, so now you've got two people who are pledged together. They're legally bound together. They're not, they're not having intimacy with one another, but they're like, well, but do we get married? Do we, do we push ahead and get married? Is that wrong? Paul, what do you say about this? And, and I want to give due diligence to, to the context of the passage and, and in Paul's mind, as we've seen all along, is, hey, if you can stand it, don't get married. Don't get married. Because there is a special way that you can actually serve the Lord completely unencumbered if you're not married. That's a legitimate option. And I want to give, give Paul the floor on that uh, because it's really been his advice all along. Paul is not anti-marriage at all. Paul is pro-marriage. He likes marriage. The Bible is pro-marriage. God created marriage. It's a good thing. But as somebody who is in a special situation of being single and being an apostle to the Gentiles traveling all around, he has a unique perspective on marriage. And he realizes that there are things that single people can do to the glory of God that married people just can't do. And they can go out and they can proclaim the word of God in a way that, uh, that married people can't. Now, here's what's interesting here. This whole section from verses 25 to 40 is not a command at all. It's just his advice. That's really all it is. You'll see when he says in verse 25, now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment. He's just giving advice. That's all he's doing. And so what I wanted to do is I wanted to take what he says here in these 15 or 16 verses, and, and I wanted to, to just sort of unpack five principles of how to take, or maybe we could say how to give relationship advice, because that's what he's doing. Here we have the Apostle Paul, who has spoken through the Holy Spirit, but this is just advice, and he's actually allowing people not to take his advice. He says, I have the Spirit, I've been counted trustworthy by the mercy of God, but here's some advice. So the first, the first principle is consider who's giving the advice. 
especially with relationship advice. Consider who is giving you relationship advice. Look at verse 25. Paul says, now concerning the betrothed, or again, some of you have virgins, but again, I think it's that betrothal period. He says, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. It's a very interesting thing. Remember, we've seen a couple of times here where when he says, I have no command from the Lord, and what he means by that is when Jesus was walking around on the earth, he gave no commands concerning this very situation. So, so we have no data on this situation. But he doesn't go and say, but I say to you in a command form. What he does is he says, I'm going to give you my judgment. And really what he's saying is, I'm going to give you my advice. And we really need to consider who's giving the advice. So lots of people might want to give people advice on staying single. But who are those people? Are they people who love like the, the fraternity life or the, the playboy life? Or people who are in a very bad relationship? People who they despise children or despise um, any sort of maturity at all? I think we need to understand who it is we are seeking advice from. And that's true even with people who are godly. What is their situation in life? What is their background? How do we understand? Paul was single. He was unmarried. He was singularly focused on missions, and he saw the the work of the gospel spread all throughout the the European um, nations through the preaching of the gospel. He loved church planning. That That was his one mission, and that's what Jesus specifically had raised him up to do. So we have to understand that his station in life was this, and he wants to encourage people as well. If your station in life might reflect that, you need to consider doing this. The other thing I think that we need to understand is somebody's attitude in that. He says, now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Here I think is is really a, a, a sense of humility that he has. He doesn't start laying down a bunch of laws for for these betrothed people. He has he realizes he has no command from the Lord. He has no solid instruction for them in this situation. Jesus said nothing about it. He has nothing, and and he just kind of lets it at that. See, you think about this. This is the Apostle Paul. If anybody, if you're going to go ask anybody for relationship advice, and you had the Apostle Paul hanging around, you go ask the Apostle Paul, wouldn't you? You're like, I'm going to go ask that guy. Like, he's he's pretty tight with Jesus. He's seen Jesus. He does miracles. He does all this stuff. Like, why wouldn't we go talk to him? But he's humble, and he says, look, I, I don't have a command, but I, I do think that I am, I am trustworthy. He doesn't lay down the fact that he's an apostle. He doesn't do, the, like, the trump card of his position. What he realizes is that when it comes to advice, it's all about God's mercy. He says, look, God, God has been merciful to me. I'm a sinner. I'm the chief of sinners. I was taken out of this, this situation where I was persecuting Christians, and I was raised up to be a special blessing to the church. That's all of God's mercy. And so he's not trying to burden anybody with what he's about to say with his advice. He's actually trying to be a blessing to them. He wants to actually free them from their burdens. Notice in verse 32. This is his heart. And I think it's a humble heart. He says, I want you to be free from anxieties. That's actually his goal in telling people, hey, refrain from marriage. He wants them to be free from anxieties. 
The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about, how, about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. And then he says this. He says, I say this to your benefit or for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. Really what Paul's getting at is, is he doesn't want to restrain them. He doesn't want to burden them with his advice. He realizes his advice is very different than what they've heard, what they've grown up with, what the culture seems to be appropriate. And he says, look, I want you to consider this seriously, but also understand that I'm not trying to lay a burden on you. And I think that's good. You need to know who you're getting advice from. The second thing when we talk about relationship advice is that we need to understand our context. We need to understand our context. What, what's the world like where we live? And does that, does that change maybe our decision on marriage or going forward with marriage or the circumstances around marriage? So notice the context of the Corinthians. Look at verses 26 through 27. He says, I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is, meaning not married. So are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. So it seems as though there, there were actually some very specific situations going on in Corinth where maybe there was some persecution going on. He says, in light of this present distress, and, and the idea of distress here is pressure or trouble that would maybe make marriage or getting married very, very difficult. And we don't know what that is. He doesn't elaborate on what that is. Was that persecution? Was that maybe coming persecution? Were there, were there other societal pressures going on? Um, that would make marriage especially tough. We, we really just don't know. But I think the, the, the thing that we can pull out of this is we need to understand what's going on not only in our world around us, but even maybe in our specific lives as well. Um, just, some, just some examples of, of some things that, that people might want to consider before getting married. Um, you think of, of uh, during World War II or in Vietnam, there was the draft. And people had to consider whether or not they would be drafted into war when they got married. Or um, there, were, there were times where there's Holocaust, or there are times where there's plague, or there are times where there's just immense persecution, where it is very likely that one or both people will die. And if you are married and you have children, then what happens to the children? And where do they go? How do you, how do you provide for them? Those are not necessarily deal-breakers. Um, but those are things to keep in mind. Other things to keep in mind that I, that I talk to people about is, is jobs. How, do you, how, will, how will you guys provide for one another? Is, is there a job situation um, for, for provision? What about theological compatibility? Two people get together and they realize, oh, we've got a lot of differences. One time I remember counseling a guy. He was a high church Lutheran, and the guy, and the, the, guy, the gal that uh, he had married was Assemblies of God. Like, they could not have been more different on what they liked in a church experience. When he would go to church at her church, it felt like 
a crazy rock concert. And when she would go to his church, it felt like everybody was dead. And they had not worked that through before they got married. They hadn't worked through spiritual gifts. She spoke in tongues. He didn't even believe that was a spiritual gift. They hadn't talked about that. They hadn't talked about how they were going to raise their kids. He was going to baptize them in their infancy. She wasn't. I mean, just a whole host of issues that people need to kind of work through. What about school? What about education? Is somebody going into college? Is it going to be four years? Is it going to be eight years? What about military service? What about family dynamics? You know, he wants to be really close to his family. She wants to move away or vice versa. Those are all things to keep in mind, is to know your context. Sometimes, in light of the present distress, it is good for a person, as Paul says in verse 26, to remain as he is. Maybe indefinitely. Maybe just for a season. Maybe get through that season and see what's on the other side of the season. It doesn't have to be, but it is. And I, I will say, for the most part, I think that in our society, although we've got a lot of craziness going on, I don't think that we are in a present distress right now where I would look at the political climate or even the social climate and go, yeah, you really shouldn't get married. I don't think that we're at that point. We might get to that point. It might get crazy. I don't know. But I don't think we're there yet. What Paul seems to be getting at, though, is just know your context. Be realistic with where you're at in the world, where, what your trajectory is in life, and what's going on in the society around you. The third thing to understand are the commands of God, specific commands. So a lot of times when we're talking about difficult ethical questions or situations, or people come to me and they say, should I get married or should I not? You, you kind of need to put up some guardrails. And those guardrails in the Bible are, are usually just the commands that we know for sure. And once you've got these guardrails in place, you know the area in which you can operate in, in Christian conscience. And so you need to know what some of those commands are. So look at verse 28. He gives, he gives the command. So even in light of the present distress, verse 28, but if you do marry, you have not what? You haven't sinned. It's not a sin to get married. It's not wrong to get married. This is his advice. Hey, in light of the present distress, marriage is going to be maybe especially tough or difficult, but it's not a sin. That's our guardrail, right? Sin and righteousness. Those are our guardrails. He says it's, it's, not, it's not a sin to get married. There are some other guardrails we see. We saw, we've seen it a couple of times. Um, in verse 39, we see a wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. So this person has to be a Christian. So that's a guardrail. That's a guardrail. And I just mentioned a whole bunch of uh, context issues, uh, you know, job, education, those kind of things. But are those commands related to those situations? No. So when Jody and I got married, we, we had both resigned our jobs, moved 2,500 miles away. We had no jobs. We had nothing. We had everything in the back of my truck. Like, that's all we had. And there are times when I look at people who are like, yeah, we got this plan. We're going to get married, and we got no jobs, and we're going to move. And I'm like, are you crazy? And I'm like, wait a minute. Was I crazy? I kind of was crazy. But God is faithful, and he works it out. He does. So we, we, we have to be really careful. We have to be careful that, that just 
just being sensitive to the context doesn't become the command. So, so I, I've known people, uh, in fact, one of my best friends in, in Bible college, he got married, he was 18, she was 17, and they lived in Florida, and they moved to California, and they just made it work. And everybody's like, oh, well, you're too young, and you're never going to make it, and I think they've got like four kids, and they're doing just fine being married for 25 years. I mean, God can bless. So it's not a command. We need to be very, very careful that our context and maybe the considerations don't become the commands because that's when we get legalistic, right? When, when you have to have a certain education or you have to make so much money or, or you have to have all of your ducks lined up um, in a row, it, it doesn't always work like that. So you need to know the commands. Here's the third thing when giving advice or taking advice is that we need to live like Jesus is really coming back. We need to live like Jesus is really coming back. And this is a kind of an odd section in verses 29 through 31, but, but this is really what he's getting at. It, it feels really upside down, but I, but I want to take us somewhere else and I'll show you that it's not all that upside down. But notice what he says in verse 29. He says, this is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it, for the present form of this world is passing away. So this is kind of a weird section. You're like, wait a minute, what, what does it mean to live with your wife but not like with your wife or to buy but not like you're really going to hang on to it? What's he talking about? Well, I think the, the gist of it is really in verse 31. The present form of this world is passing away. Whatever situation you find yourself in in life, just understand it ain't going to last. Jesus could come back today. He could come back tomorrow. And the whole of the Christian life is to look beyond all of the stuff here on earth to Jesus' return. And, and part of living the Christian life is understanding that everything we're doing here is passing, and our whole focus should be on Jesus. In fact, look over to 1 Peter chapter 1 for just a moment. Peter says this very clearly and plainly. Paul's a little bit more poetic. Peter, Peter just gets right to it. So Peter says in verse in chapter 1 of verse 13, 1 Peter 1, 13, he gives a big introduction. He says, therefore, preparing your minds for action, right? This is, this is how you're going to live. So how do we act? Preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you. Rough morning. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. All of our actions, you guys, are through the lens of Jesus' is coming back. All of our hope, all of our attitude, all of our mindset is, yeah, but Jesus is coming back. But Jesus is coming back. 
And that's what Paul means back in 1 Corinthians 7 when he says this present form of the world is passing away. One day all of this is going to be gone. There won't be any more husbands and wives. There won't be any more. The the stuff that you go out and buy today or, or buy for school or buy for whatever, that's all going to be burned up one day. Don't get too wrapped up in it. The thing that causes you great grief and anxiety and sorrow, the mourning that he talks about here, don't get too wrapped up in it. One day it's all going to be gone. It's going to be such a distant memory, it, it, it will hardly even come across your mind anymore in eternity. And he says, this is the mindset that believers ought to have. Not that, not that if you're married, you're like, nah, I'm not dealing with the wife anymore. That's not the point. The point is, is even this marriage that we have is temporary. And it's really going to give way to the ultimate and true marriage when Jesus comes back and there's that consummation of our marriage with him. Keep that in mind always, no matter what your situation is in life. Uh, Leon Morris said that it is easy to be preoccupied with our circumstance and it is easy to forget eternity. And that's really what he's getting at. Don't get so preoccupied with your circumstance, whether it's married or not, whether you're betrothed or not, whether you have goods or not, whether you're poor or not, whether you're sad or joyful or not, that you forget eternity because that's where we set our hope. Number four, any advice that we give or any advice that we take should be to promote good order and peace. To promote good order and peace. And we see this in verses 32 through 35. Forget the, forget the man being anxious about his wife and that sort of thing. Just, just notice Paul's heart. What it, why is he giving this advice? And I think I, I came up with five, five, five heart attitudes he has about this. Verse 32, I want you to be free from anxieties. That's number one. He wants them to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord how to please the Lord, but the married man is anxious about the worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. And I think this is really good, right? Right. We get this. If you're married, if, if you're a man, you, you have to please your wife, happy wife, happy life. That's just how it is. Right. And the same goes for ladies too. If you're not married, you're not encumbered with that. You don't have to take into account what your husband says. You don't have to take into account what your wife says. You are free and you're free to go serve the Lord. You're free to go do whatever you want to do in the Lord. But here you see that really the reason for his advice in encouraging these betrothed people to consider staying single is is because he wants them to be, in verse 32, free from anxiety. And then down in verse 35, there's four others. I say this for your own benefit. He actually has their good in mind. He's not trying to hurt them. It really is for their benefit. He says it for their own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon them, He's not trying to hold them back from something they really, really want. He just wants them to consider this. But to promote good order. To promote good order. He wants things to be orderly in their lives. 
and in the church, and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. That's really what he wants. He wants them to be solely focused on Jesus more than anything else. Now, it's not wrong to marry, and it's not wrong to be anxious about what your husband wants or what your wife wants. Those are okay. But more than that, even in marriage, our undivided devotion should be to Jesus. So the advice should be to promote good order and peace. And the number five, I think we often forget this about advice, but is the, choi- the choice is ultimately yours. The choice is ultimately the individual's choice. I don't know about you, sometimes when I go get advice from people, like, I kind of want them to make the decision for me, and then I'll blame them if it goes wrong, right? (laughs) I'll celebrate if it goes right, but I'll blame them if it goes wrong. I want them to make the choice. And at the end of the day, Paul says, no, this is on you. You have to make this choice. And notice how much he puts it back on the people. He puts it back on the betrothed, and he actually puts it back on the widows as well. I kind of clumped them all together because I think the principles are the same. So, verse 36, if anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly toward his betrothed, that is, if there there are two people who are betrothed and they're getting involved in sexual immorality that they shouldn't, he says, if his passions are strong and it has to be, let him do as he wishes, let them marry. Right? We saw that that earlier in the chapter where if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. That's what he's talking about now. If you're in that betrothed state and you can't exercise self-control, go get married. It is no sin, verse 36. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control, and has determined this in his heart, to keep her as his betrothed, to not get married right now, he will do well. So then he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. Verse 39. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is, and I think that I too have the Spirit of God. So we see in verses 36 through 38, this is sort of the man's side of the equation, right? We've seen the lady, and now this is the man's side. If he's not behaving properly, if you're... you're passions are out of control, go get married. Go get married. But this is on you. You have to make this decision. And he puts it back on him over and over again, verse 37 especially. He says, but whoever is firmly established in your own heart, you have to be convinced of this. This is true of any advice, biblical or otherwise, that you get. You have to be convinced that the advice is good. You can't just take it because someone else said it and you trust them and, well, whatever. No, you have to be convinced. You have to make the decision. He also says, under no compulsion. Right? This has to be your own free decision. This is hard, especially with marriage advice, isn't it? There's a lot of people who are compelling people to do a whole lot of different things. One way or another, where to live, what to do, what jobs to get, what circumstances, that sort of thing. But you have to be under no compulsion. Verse 37, but having his desire under control. Is what you want under control? Are you out of control? You have control of your own body. And then he says, he has determined in his own heart. He's determined in his own heart. 
This is all back on the person. And the interesting thing, actually, I just noticed as I was reading it in verse 40, you know one reason for people to get married? It's just to be happy. It's just to be happy. There's a book called Sacred Marriage that, that the subtitle is, well, what if, what if God wants you to be holy and not happy? And that's true. Marriage is a sanctification process more than it is a happiness process. But you know what else marriage is? It's for happiness. That's really what it's desired. Yet in my judgment, she is happier. He thinks she'd be happier to not get married. You know what she might think? Yeah, forget that. I'm getting married. I want to be happy. I want a husband. And that's okay. At the end of the day with marriage, it's really all on you. It's not your parents. It's not your pastor. It's not even the apostle. Do you realize like the apostle Paul is abdicating his own position and saying, this is on you to decide. This is on you to work out. Paul was single. We have to take that into account. I'm married, so I'm going to give you a couple of verses. Because I, too, think that I have the Spirit of God. And this is true. Proverbs 19, 14. House and wealth are inherited from fathers, but a prudent wife is from who? It's from the Lord. A prudent wife is from the Lord. Proverbs 18, 22. He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from who? From the Lord. From the Lord. Whether you marry or you refrain from marriage, you have to be convinced in your own mind. If you marry, it's not sin. You might serve the Lord more unhindered as single. If you haven't been married, consider that. Really consider that. But if you have a desire, it's okay. And you can bring God glory in marriage. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are good to us. And you've given gifts both of singleness and of marriage, and we pray that we would exercise them to your glory. Thank you, Lord, for your word. May we be humble and walk according to it. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.